glorious good news for us. That is that we are saved not by the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. great God in heaven, you are the everlasting God. You are Emmanuel, God with us. This morning, we thank you that we can open your word and see this incredible picture of a promise fulfilled, of a household that rejoiced. And Lord, in like manner, we can rejoice this morning because a true and greater son has been given to us a fulfillment of a promise at just the right time. Lord, we thank you that this morning we can open your word and be instructed and equipped and rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness. And so we ask that you would do that by your spirit for your glory that we might reflect and ponder the mercies, the wonder, and the power of Christ this day. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, imagine waiting 25 years for something that was promised to you to come to pass. Something you've been waiting for took 25 years to happen. That actually did happen in 2019, just a few years ago, when the City Library of Sydney, Australia, received a book in the mail. And the book was accompanied with a letter. And I think we have a picture of the letter. The letter says this, I'm returning this book which has been on my bookshelf for far too long. I'm really sorry I did not return it sooner. I have trouble letting things go. (laughs) It was a copy of Philosophy for Beginners, and it was checked out in 1994, 25 years late. Now, if you're wondering what the cost of that late fee was, at the approximate fine rate of 30 cents a day, the book fine was $2,700. Thankfully, though, the um, library has a fee that they just charge off the book. So the person probably should have checked out the book Wise Financial Decisions for Beginners (laughs) rather than Philosophy. But just imagine that, waiting 25 years for something to happen. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Solomon, the writer there of Proverbs, is wisely remarking that People can only bear frustration for so long when our prayers, when our plans continue to get delayed, it can cause our hearts to weaken. One person said, hope is good for breakfast, but it makes a poor supper. You see, when we've been waiting and we've been believing and we've been trusting and praying for something that finally does come to pass, that fulfillment produces fruitful life within us. In our study of Genesis, we come today to chapter 21, which is a desire fulfilled in Abraham and Sarah's life, but it's been 25 years in the making. In fact, in Genesis 12, we read these words in verse 4. It says, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So that's when he originally, uh, just prior to that, heard that God promised to bless him, to make him a blessing, that I'll make you into a great nation. That was when he was about 75 years old. And here in chapter 21, just in verse 5, we read these words. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 
So 25 years later, we come now to the text where the family joyfully receives the birth of the promised son. We see God's faithfulness to keep his promise, even though his body, scripture over and over says he was as good as dead. We're also gonna see in this text, Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman who has already given birth to Ishmael, but as we've come to understand, what was wrought in Ishmael is of the flesh. And that was not a miraculous birth where God would receive the glory. No, that was a tragic failure. And though God would bless Ishmael with many descendants, he would not bless him with his covenant. He'd be outside of the covenant. It was going to be Abraham's barren wife, Sarah, who would give birth to the son of promise, Isaac. And so God now makes good on his promise 25 years later. And as we study this today, there's a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover. But what we'll be encouraged by is that God is at work in our lives, even when the circumstances in our life don't seem to support evidence of that truth. In fact, sometimes they support contrary evidence. I don't know if God is at work. And I want to encourage you today, he is at work. He is sovereignly working all things together to the praise of his glorious grace. And so as we come later to the Lord's table together, we're also going to be reminded that we are invited to a covenant that has been established with a true and greater son of the promise. So if you're taking note this morning, we're going to cover four things. We're going to see first that God fulfills what he promises. Amen. So thankful that that's true. We're going to see, secondly, that the children of the slave woman are not the heirs. And you might not, you're not sure, should I say amen to that? Yes, you should. We'll find out why later. Someone here definitely needs to know this, that God hears and answers the cries of the troubled in heart. We'll see that in verses 15 through 21. And finally, is there better news than this? The everlasting God is with his people verses 22 through 34. So a lot of ground to cover today, but let's begin with that first great point that God fulfills what he promises. Verse one captures that point in just one verse. Look at it. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, if you remember from our studies in the last few weeks, in Genesis 18, We saw the Lord visiting Abraham and promising around this time next year, I'm going to visit Sarah and she's going to conceive and have a son. And a lot has happened in that year since that last visit. We've we've seen in the last few weeks, Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities have been destroyed. Lot and his daughters have now born children who will become the Moabite, the Ammonite peoples. Abraham has journeyed south out of where he was to Gerar, and we'll just say he had some interesting interactions with Abimelech there. Pastor Micah taught us well last week where Abraham was still making sinful decisions that he had made in Egypt, and you would have thought he learned the lesson there, but as we were encouraged last week, sometimes we can sadly fall prone to the same sins that we've overcome. And so we were challenged uh, last week to learn and to grow. And so we've seen throughout this study in the life of Abraham, that he's a good example for sure, but he's not a perfect example. If we were to look through scripture, we'd see examples like Moses. What a great example. He was so humble, but he didn't enter the promised land. We see men like Isaiah, the great prophet. Wow, what a man of God. Yet even Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm a man undone. I'm I'm a man of unclean lips among a people that are the same. And so we have to know that Abraham is not the ultimate example for us. 
Christ is. Christ alone is good. The scripture says there is no one good, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. So Abraham's a good example, but he's not had a perfect batting average. He is, you could say, swung and missed quite a few times. But now all of his waiting is finally coming to pass. His barren elderly wife is pregnant. Look at verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And notice Abraham's obedience. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now just for a minute, I want you to think about the joy that entered this household as the baby bump began to grow. Just think of that joy, the rejoicing that came as Isaac was born. This was a son they had been believing for, they had been anticipating for so many years. And he came miraculously at just the right time that God said he would. His birth represented all the promises to Abraham about being this great multitude, this nation through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. It's a little bit hard to be a great nation without a child. And it's very hard to not be a great nation with a child who's not yet the son of the promise. And so this is a time of great joy. And notice Abraham's obedience. Uh, He obeys God. God had called him to name him Isaac. And then he obeys God down to the detail of the day of circumcision. Verse 4, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. So We saw that previously he had his whole household circumcised and his son Ishmael when he was older, but here he has the opportunity to fully obey the Lord in the birth of his son Isaac and circumcising him. Verse 5 says Abraham was 100 years old. And notice verse 6, Sarah says, note this, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And then she said, who would have said to Abraham, that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. You remember this from the year prior, God had come to Abraham and said, your wife Sarah's gonna conceive, she's gonna give birth to a son, you're gonna name him Isaac. And remember she was from, she was hiding out in the tent, listening, and then she hears that news and starts to laugh. She starts to chuckle. And then God says, not to her, but to Abraham, why did your wife laugh? And remember she kind of pipes up, I didn't laugh, Because that's smart, arguing with the omniscient God who knows and sees all things. That's that's a smart one. And and then God says, yeah, actually you did laugh. And and so that little exchange happens. But the name Isaac actually means one who laughs. And so every time they called out his name, Isaac, they're reminded. But notice how it's changed here. They're not reminded of Abraham's laughter of surprise or Sarah's laughter of unbelief. But no, now notice it's God who's attributed with giving the laughter. God has provided the laughter. In other words, God has produced something in my life that brings me great joy. Other people will now get a chance to share in that joy. She says, everyone who hears will laugh over me. They can share in the goodness of God. You see, Sarah previously may have been laughing at God, but now she's laughing with him. So Sarah's laughter here is not shameful. Now it's sacred. It's glorifying God in his wondrous works. So previously, this was a household of tension and anxiety. Now it's filled with the joy and the glory of the Lord. And church, that's how our households should be. Not households filled with mocking one another and 
and shameful joking and jesting where we're jabbing each other sarcastically. No, our households should be filled with the joy and laughter of knowing that God has given us more than we ever could deserve. Stephen Cole says it this way. He says, I hope you enjoy your children as God's precious gifts to you and laugh often with them. The poet Thackeray said, a good laugh is sunshine in a house. I think some of us need to incorporate this maybe even today. He says, when God does great things for you, you laugh with joy and others rejoice with you. Laughter ought to be a part of every Christian home and church as we see God do great things for us and as we enjoy his gifts to us, end quote. Amen. You see, verse one has such powerful truth embedded in it. It says, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. God fulfills what he promises and then notice in tandem, Abraham obeys God in naming him and circumcising him. And I just have to say this, the promise comes before the obedience. It's not that Abraham obeyed and then God said, okay, because of your obedience, now I'll promise to bless you. It's God promises first, then we respond in obedience. And the apostle Peter unpacked this concept of maturity in his second epistle. I want you to jot these verses down and read them later. We'll just skim through them. But 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8 is a foundational verse for us in our discipleship, in our growth, in our maturity. And all of us are at some level of our sanctification. None of us have fully arrived. And if you have, it's time to be transferred into glory. None of us are there yet. We're all maturing. And this is a template for the brand new Christian and the very mature Christian. But in 2 Peter 1, he makes this claim in verse 3 that he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So there's the divine power. God has given us his power. And then he says in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. So we have the power of God, the promise of God. And then he says in verse 5, make every effort for this reason to supplement your faith with virtue and with knowledge and with self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. In other words, we're to become obedient and add to our faith obedience. And then he says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not just time out. This is not a formula but he uses the word supplement. Other translations say add to your faith. And he uses the word increasing. So growth in our maturity is a blend of these four things. We'll put it on the screen. It's taking the power of God that's available to the Christian, the promise of God, which we have in the canon of scripture. It's mingling that, his work with faith, trusting in him, clinging to him, clinging to his promises and his power, but then also walking in obedience adding to our faith. We don't just stand by with empty faith. If we were to do that, let's just remove faith and just obey out of duty, not delight. Then we're just drones who do what we're programmed to do. If we took away uh, obedience, then how can we say our faith is active? If If we took away God's promises, what is supplying us with hope and a future? If we eliminate God's power, then we're trying this in our own strength every morning and we're failing. And so I find in Peter's exhortation great hope, and I see a picture of that in Abraham's obedience 
as he trusts in God's promise. Now, let's look at the second section. This is a very foundational one that we see revisited in the New Testament. It might seem obscure at first, but the children of the slave woman are not the heirs. We're going to unpack that starting in verse 8. Notice that it says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, in the east, uh, boys are weaned usually for three years. So Isaac would have been a toddler at this point. And this great feast that Abraham makes at the day of weaning was a moment to celebrate something, but also to assemble people together from the surround, not just his tribe, the surrounding tribes, and in effect, to present the son who was weaned as the rightful heir. So this is a commemorative moment. This is a very symbolic moment. In fact, commentators believe Isaac as a two, three-year-old would have been so cute. He would have been dressed in a symbolic robe that signifies his birthright. So here he comes out, toddling out at age two or three, holding maybe Sarah's hand, dressed in regalia. This is a joyous moment. Can you believe it? All eyes are on him. He's the rightful successor to Abraham. And then from the back of the room, we hear the cackle of a mocking teenager. Notice verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, it doesn't mention his name here, but remember, this is Ishmael. And the reason I said teenager is if we look in the scripture, I'll just prove this on the screen. If we look at Genesis 16, we learn Abraham was 86 when Ishmael was born. And now when Isaac is born, we just read it several times, Abraham's 100. So a quick math, 14 years old at the birth of Isaac. If boys were weaned for two to three years, then we can argue Ishmael must be around 16 to 17 years old. He's old enough to drive a camel at this point. <laughs> so the word for laughing in verse 9, you can circle that. That's the word Isaac. Ishmael was Isaacing, if you would. The laughter in the home. There's been a lot of laughter in the last few years. The laughter that began as surprise and then morphed here into celebration has now devolved into scorn. So this is a teenager getting a good laugh at a small child's expense. It's unfitting, but it's more than that. It's actually a threat. You see, Ishmael now reveals his disdain, his scorn for the son of promise. He's not embracing Isaac as the rightful heir. He sees him as a joke. He might be thinking, I'm also a son of Abraham. I am oldest. I'm the rightful heir. Who is this kid? And so he now poses a great threat to the promise and the work of God. And Sarah sees this and she acts. Notice verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Why was he displeased? Well, because he loved Ishmael, genuinely. This was his own son. Remember, he had raised him, he had circumcised him, he had taught him, he had traveled with him. No doubt, he had prayed with him. He had revealed the truth of Yahweh, the goodness of Yahweh to him. Hey, son, Yahweh's been faithful to me. He's been faithful to us. And so though he loved his son, his son also posed a, a true threat to the promise of God. And additionally, Ishmael may have been a backup plan. This may have been 
in the back of Abraham's mind, we don't know, but hey, if anything happens to Isaac, we could always fall back on the other son, the older son, just in case. God wanted to ensure that nothing would thwart his promise or his plan. So though Sarah had previously told Abraham, cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and that was not of God, now it is. Look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Now, I just need to point this out. A few weeks back when we were in the text that uh, highlighted that Abraham was not to follow his wife and her advice, and I said to us as men, uh, make sure that we don't take that as a proof text and say, I don't have to listen to you, woman. The scripture says don't, you know, Abraham didn't listen to his wife. In the same way, I just want to encourage you wives not to go to verse 12 and say, hey, the Bible says whatever the wife says, you're to do as she tells you, okay? Obviously, we're not making proof text from uh, these verses. That's a, a time, uh, you know, in scripture and a sermon for another time and place. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. There it is. But notice, he says, no, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. In other words, Abraham, I'm not recognizing the son as anything but your offspring. So for that reason alone, I will bless him. But your offspring will be named, in other words, blessed with the covenant through Isaac. So Abraham, do what your wife is saying. Send him out. Cast him out. So notice, again, the immediate obedience of Abraham. We'll see this again next week in Genesis 22. Abraham rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child. Now, this is not, he's not picking up a 16-year-old and putting the baby on her shoulder. He's putting the child um, alongside her. And sends her away, she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So he wisely follows Sarah's counsel to cast out the slave woman and her child. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem allegorical, but Paul the Apostle uses this story to apply the spiritual lesson of this event in Galatians chapter 4. So just briefly, I want us to see, because this is a very important verse for the church in Galatia, and it's captured for us in the canon of Scripture. So hold your place in Genesis 21. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. While you're turning there, we have to lock into our minds, Hagar's the slave woman, Sarah's the free woman, Ishmael's the son of bondage, and Isaac is the son of promise. So look at Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, let's fix that, but you can follow along on the screen. Verse 21 says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. That's Isaac. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. So here's where we see the picture. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. 
for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Glory to God. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see, the Jewish legalists called the Judaizers that Paul's rebuking here, they were troubling the church in Galatia, and they were arguing that you need to fully embrace the law in order as a means of justification. You're not, you're not justified unless you add circumcision and more. And so Paul is showing that those who seek to be justified by the law, they have a mother, and their mother is Hagar. And she's bondage. She's slavery. And those, alternatively, who rest in the promise of God by faith are children of the free woman, children of Sarah, children who are not in bondage but are free, and we're those who trust in the promise. So that's who we are as believers. You see the, the analogy here? We are children of the free woman. We are not under law or the bondage of keeping the law in order to be justified before the Father, to be in right standing with him. We have someone who, who justifies us by faith. We are in him, and his righteousness has been imputed to us. So Paul in Philippians 3 was saying, here's the reasons why I could trust more in the, in, and put confidence in my own flesh as a Jew more than any of you. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, and I'm a, a person of the tribe of Benjamin, and man, as far as keeping the law, I was blameless. I was even a Pharisee. But then he says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying, what I had as a religious asset over here in my own legalism, now over here, that's actually a liability. And so in Philippians 3.8, this is a very important verse. He says this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can't come to the table this morning as we approach communion and say, I deserve to be here because look how good I am. My good works qualify me to sit at this table this morning. Paul would say, no, I, I count it all as loss. In fact, he says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the key part. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is glorious good news for us. That is that we are saved not by the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we realize as we look at this, that we are not the children of the slave woman, but of the free. So we cast out the slave woman. Now let's turn back uh, to Genesis 21. And starting in verse 15, the story departs from Sarah and Abraham just for a moment and follows Hagar and Ishmael. We've already seen this, so we should have some muscle memory of seeing Hagar leave with her son out into the wilderness. 
And so that brings us to our third section in the text, that God hears and answers the cries of the troubled in heart. Abraham sent her with bread and a skin of water. Notice verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went out and sat opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And then as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. So what's happening here, Abraham sends her with water, but it's just a skin of water. And now it's empty. They're in the wilderness. All hope is lost. They say humans can survive on about 40 days without food or 40 minutes for some of us. You can only survive about two or three days without water. But now we, we amplify that because they're in the wilderness and, and the sun is beating down on them. So she lays her teen son in the shade of a bush and then she gets some distance away to stay away, to mourn him as he inevitably dies of thirst. But from that bush, Ishmael must have cried out because notice verse 17. It doesn't say God heard the voice of Hagar. It says God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. So she's praying, she's weeping, but God is hearing Ishmael. We don't know if he's praying or if he's just weeping, but God commands Hagar, his mother, to lift him up and to hold him firmly. Why? Because God is going to keep his promise. Now I want you to act based on my promise. So verse 19 says, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now, I love this because, follow with me for a minute. This is not as much miraculous as it is just simple providence. So it's not that this text doesn't say God created miraculously a well out of nowhere. It just says that Hagar laid down her son. She traveled whatever the distance a bow shot is. But she had come just short of this water well. And so the solution to her real life, real life problem was right in front of her, and God simply opened her eyes to see it. She, she had traveled just far enough to not see the well, and then God opens her eyes, and there it is. And I love that sometimes God answers our prayers, not in some big supernatural way, but in what we would otherwise consider very ordinary means. Spurgeon actually likened Hagar to us when we seek after God. He said this, as in Hagar's case, the supply of their necessities is close at hand. The well is near. Secondly, it often happens that that supply is as much there as if it had been provided for them and for them only as this well seemed to have been. And thirdly, no great exertion is needed to procure from the supply already made by God all that we want. She filled her bottle with water, a joyful task to her, and she gave the lad drink. In other words, God is near, and as we seek after him, we don't have to exert this great effort. The well is there, so draw near. But take note with me that God was with them, and in verse 20, it explicitly says God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness. He became a bow expert. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and then his mother took a wife for him. God was with the boy. God wasn't against Ishmael. God was protecting him through the, the wilderness and would go on to bless him and make him into 
a great nation. And that promise of making him great comes in verse 21, as his mother selects an Egyptian woman to become his wife. But I just see the loving, gracious hand of God here. God didn't have to answer their prayers, their cries. They're outside of the covenant. I mean, God could have just let them perish if that's what he desired to do, and he still would be just. They still, in a sense, posed a threat to God's ways. I mean, Islam today would look back to Ishmael as their uh, patriarch uh, under Abraham. And so I just find this fascinating. Even in their cry of desperation, an unbeliever, so to speak, God answered. And here's why I'm encouraged by that. Because how much more will God answer the cry of his beloved children? Our family has a golf cart that we uh, drive around our neighborhood. And uh, though primarily Jen and I like to enjoy sometimes an impromptu date night at sunset on the golf cart, it just ages us really quickly, doesn't it? Our kids will sometimes have friends over, and the question is always, can we go out on the golf cart? And, well, yes, you can, but you need to stay on the sidewalk and keep it under 15. That's the max golf cart speed anyway. And there's also another neighbor who has teenage kids, and they also have a golf cart. And uh, we'll see them going by, jamming out to whatever music teenagers jam out to. And by using the phrase jam out, I've also aged myself, uh, clearly. But a few years ago, the neighborhood kids all, our house is kind of the spot where the neighborhood kids congregate a lot. And a few years ago, the kids came running up, panicked. And they said one of the kids fell off the golf cart and hit their head. And so we ran out in a bit of a, you know, flush. And we knew London, our daughter, was out there at the same time on our golf cart. And so we, we run out, we find out who's injured, who was it? And we, when we found out it was not our daughter, it was another neighborhood child, a little boy named Chris. We didn't just say, oh, whew, thank goodness it wasn't London. Okay, thanks, guys. We're going to go continue making dinner. No, there was compassion there. There was care there, even if it wasn't our daughter. And I, I see God's care for Ishmael and his mother here in answering the cries of the troubled in heart, and I wonder how much more does he care for you and I, his beloved? How much more does he delight in answering our prayer? and providing what is needed for his own children. So may that be an encouragement to you, maybe this week even, when you're tempted to doubt his love or his concern for you. He loves you, and he will answer. Now, last week we saw how Abimelech had returned Abraham's deception above and beyond with grace and kindness. And so now, beginning in verse 22, we have another interaction between them, but now a covenant is being made. So let's look at this final section. The everlasting God is with his people. Verse 22 says, At that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all you do. I think that's a great compliment to receive from an unbeliever. God is with you in all that you do. And so, Lord, may it be true in our lives. But notice verse 23. Abimelech says, now therefore swear to me by God, you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. I mean, Abraham hasn't had a great track record with Abimelech. He wasn't very honest with him. So all he knows is God is with this man and he's kind of a liar. And so swear to me, you will not deal falsely with me. And Abraham says, I will swear. Now, some commentators believe that Abimelech is just the title for a ruler, and so this is a different Abimelech. 
But we don't see the context clues here. In fact, we see the opposite. Verse 23, there's history. I have dealt kindly with you, so deal with me in the same way. And so he recognizes, Abraham, you've become a great house. I want to make sure we have an oath here. We're on the same page. But what happens when an oath is threatened? Look at verse 25. Apparently there was a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, and so Abraham calls him out. He reproves him. And, you know, isn't this true? It only takes one little argument to thwart the unity or the koinonia, the fellowship that we have, or a man-made promise that's not rooted in something deeper. Just one little argument can destroy that. And so this is an important moment because the well of water would have been a very important, if not strategic, place. In Canaan, there are very a few sources of water. There's no major river. So Israel would have been relating, or relying deeply on rain. And so if you have a property with a well on it, it would have been a place of great importance and strategy. And so all we know is that one of Abimelech's servants seizes the property or the well itself. Abimelech doesn't seem to know about it. He says, this is the first I've heard of it. And so Abraham elevates their relationship above just a swear, a, yeah, handshake, oath, to, look, a relational covenant. We read in verses 27 through 30 that he takes sheep and oxen and that they make a covenant. And then he takes seven lambs and sets them apart. We don't know if this is like Genesis 15 where the lambs are cut in half and laid out for uh, the two to walk through and make an agreement. We don't know that. Or if they are just given as a good faith witness and as long as those lambs are alive, then we're on good terms. But notice what happens next. Verse 31 says, therefore that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. They made a covenant and then Abimelech and the commander of his army leave and go back to the land of the Philistines. That location is a very important location, the well, Beersheba. Beersheba means well of seven. It's a very important site. In fact, years later, Isaac is going to redig the well out. Uh, Jacob, his, uh, the grandson of Abraham, is going to make this his last stop after he deceived his brother and stole his birthright and he leaves to go find a wife. This is his last stop, Beersheba. This one day becomes the territory of Simeon and Judah as tribes. And a lot more significant things take place here at the place known as Beersheba. Not just the well, but the surrounding land. In fact, the phrase from Dan to Beersheba becomes really a phrase that encompasses all of Israel. Dan, the northernmost point, to Beersheba, the southernmost point. And notice what happens here. Abraham doesn't just leave and go back. It says he planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the everlasting God. And then it says Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Circle that phrase, Yahweh, the everlasting God. You see, he had already known God as El Elyon, God Most High, in his interaction with Melchizedek. He had come to know God as El Shaddai, the God who is almighty and all-sufficient. But now he's grown to know and recognize God as El Olam, the everlasting God. The everlasting God, as we just read in Psalm 90, who is from everlasting and to everlasting. The God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is above and outside of time, who knows the end from the beginning. This is the God who made an everlasting, an unending covenant 
with Abraham and his descendants. He had given them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Abraham knew as he faced the coming years ahead that God would not change, that God was the same, and we see it in Hebrews, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Warren Wearsby says this, what an encouragement to know the everlasting God. Wells would disappear, trees would be cut down, lambs would grow up and die, altars would crumble, treaties would perish, but the everlasting God would remain. You see, Abraham now planting this tree is enjoying God's grace and now extending God's glory. This is a place of worship. He's calling on the name of the Lord. He's gathering his family in under that tree to teach Isaac the ways of Yahweh. But then not just that, to extend God's glory to the nations around him, to dwell in the land of the Philistines, those who wouldn't truly call on the name of God, but would have a witness of the truth of God. The neighboring peoples could say, like Abimelech, God is with this man, as the glory of God extended to the surrounding nations. You see, the promise of God to bless Abraham with offspring took 25 years to be fulfilled. But sadly, we're going to come to this eventually in a few weeks. Well, actually, it's going to be at the beginning of the year because we're doing an Advent series starting in a few weeks. But in the new year, we're going to come to a text that says, and Isaac died. The son that we've been waiting for is not the promised seed who would crush the head of the serpent. So God's people are going to have to wait not just 25 more years, but as we scroll through the historical, the poetic, the prophetic words of the rest of the Old Testament, we realize it's going to be thousands more years until the true promised seed of Abraham, the true son of promise, the Lord Jesus Christ would be born. You see, Jesus is a true and greater Isaac. His conception, like Isaac, was miraculous. It was a fulfillment of a promise after a long period of waiting. His birth was also one that brought great rejoicing. But church, in Christ, we have our hope not in a man who will live and then will one day die, but in one who died and yet lives. Through whom all the peoples of the earth, every Gentile from every nation, tribe, and tongue, will one day bow before. It says in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And some, before that great and awful day of judgment, some from every nation, tribe, and tongue before that day will confess. And maybe we pray from Senegal, from those people groups. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we see that God has invited you and I into a right relationship. It's a covenant that's not based on your goodness, or my goodness, praise God, or our ability to keep the covenant, but it's based on his said, his steadfast love. You and I this morning approach this table based on the merits of Christ, the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, who bled and suffered and died and was buried and who rose again triumphantly. We approach this morning the everlasting God, through the sacrifice of his beloved son who took our place, who died, and who rose for our justification. In just a moment, our ushers are going to come and during this song that we're going to sing together about the grace that is greater than our sin, we're going to distribute those elements. And we're asking for those of you who are not followers of Christ, 
to please abstain from this time. We don't want there to be an impression that this is a rote religious exercise that puts us in right standing with God. No, no outward work under the sun by man could ever produce righteousness. Instead, this is an invitation for those who have renounced their sin, who have submitted their lives to Christ as Lord, who are trusting in his perfect righteousness, which has been imputed to us by faith. So believer, listen, take heart this morning. As we sing and reflect on the grace that is greater than our sin, take heart. As we receive the bread that represents the Lord's broken body and the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood, take heart. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater hope than this, the living hope of Christ's resurrection. There's no greater joy than to know the God who keeps covenant and keeps his promises will be with his people world without end. Amen? As we close the sermon this morning, may we reflect on the goodness of God to keep his promise. One hymn says it this way, broader than the ocean wide, stronger than its highest tide, deeper than its measuring rod are the promises of God. Firmer than the mountain high, higher than the distant sky, though this earth should pass away, yet God's promises will stay. When this world is wrapped in flame and the judge his own shall name, when the judgment day is past, yet the promises will last. While eternal years roll on, though the ages yet to come, still God's promises are true and we'll find them ever new. Amen? That is our hope. The God of the promise will be true to his word. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the everlasting God. This morning we approach this table struck with awe that we are invited. That we are invited based not on our own righteousness, which is filthy rags, but on the imputed righteousness, the perfect righteousness of our dear Lord, the Son, the true Son of the promise. Lord, we thank you that you came from heaven to earth and bore our sin in your body on the tree, that you died in our place, that you rose again. Lord, we thank you that this morning, as we've looked at the life of Abraham in the joy of the birth of the son, Lord, we can look with equal, if not greater joy at the arrival of the true son of promise, who in our hearts we've set apart as Lord. This morning, Lord, we thank you that we can come to your table based on your finished work and receive from you. And we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in this time as we consider the glory of the cross and the sufferings of our dear Lord. We ask this in the name above every name. In Christ's name, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.